The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Content warning. Before we begin this episode of Coffee and Books, we wanted to let you know that this episode does contain descriptions of actual sexual violence. This material can be hard to listen to, and we recognize that in every room, there are survivors. If you need someone to talk to, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. everybody, I'm Mark Lamont Hill, owner of Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. I'm a professor, a scholar, and most importantly, a book nerd. I say book nerd because I don't just love to read books, I'm the person who loves to read about the book. I love hearing authors talk about how and why they wrote the book, and I love talking to other book nerds about their favorite books. That's why I started Coffee and Books. It's a podcast all about books. Every episode, I sit down over a cup of coffee with the world's biggest authors to discuss the most interesting, controversial, fun, and important books. And sometimes I hang out with experts, fans, and other special guests to talk about some of the greatest books of all time. And today, I am really excited to be joined by Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Khan. They are Columbia University professors. They're brilliant, they're smart, and they wrote an amazing book. It's called Sexual Citizens. It's a landmark study of sex, power, and assault on campus. Seamus and Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thrilled to be here. So this is a show called Coffee and Books, and it's a very serious topic. We start, though, with the conversation about coffee. I am currently drinking a cup of straight black coffee. It's the point in the semester where I'm teaching and I'm doing other stuff, and the sugar will tucker me out by noon, and I need to teach like two classes today. So I drink just a plain cup of, uh, of La Cologne black coffee. Are you all coffee drinkers? Yes, sir. Huge. Oh, what do you drink? I mean, you're, so I have an idea because you all are fancy Ivy League professors that you drink like lattes, uh, you know, with some fancy uh, syrups in it and, and all kinds of fruitful stuff as you drive your Volvos and speak French and do all the other stuff <laughs> that you all are supported to do. Well, Seamus yeah. definitely has the French. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually, I feel kind of seen. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, uh, I definitely um, am an intolerable person when it comes to coffee. Like I have beans that are freshly roasted. I grind them fresh every morning. I weigh my coffee. I weigh my water. I do like pour over every single morning for myself. Wow. That is, as as a coffee shop owner, that is music to my ears. Actually, it's not music to my ears. That means you're not coming to us to do that, but that's so cool. (laughs) Jennifer, how about you? (laughs) So I learned the weighing from Seamus and, you know, I'll never go back. Um, My preferred cup is a a Sumatra French press and I'm very particular. Like I really only want Sumatra beans. So I'm not, not, you know, not, not difficult at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You all have destroyed all the stereotypes about, about professors right now. So guys, I understand you're, you're Columbia University professors, so this was somewhat a convenient sample. But why pick Columbia University to do a study of sex and sexuality and sexual violence and all this? Stuff? Why, why a nice place like Columbia University? The story of shift. So, you know, th- there was a lot of attention to sexual assault in, in 2014. I saw that there was a big multi-campus survey starting up. And I was like, you know, I think measuring the rates of something where like the rates have actually been constant for decades is not going to get us to the solution. And so I pitched to the executive vice president for university life. I was like, I have the idea to do a little ethnography. Like that was how this started. I sort of planted myself next to her in a meeting. And I was like, I just want to do a little ethnography. I feel like if we understood better how this is produced by the campus context, uh, we could do something else with prevention. And I think that this is the pitch for like having women in places of power. Like she got it immediately. And she is sort of our patron saint in, in you know, going to bat and securing the resources. So I, we did it because I think Columbia was in a position where they wanted to lead in producing science that would advance prevention. So it, it was all sort of taking advantage of the circumstances. And there are many ways in which Columbia and Barnard obviously are not typical of the campus experience, but the ways that the book pulls back the curtain on what it feels like to be a college student is, I think, applicable to, I mean, we have students across the country have said to us, you know, we feel so seen in your story. And I think that for parents, it gives them a little taste, not just of about sexual assault as a problem, but about 
the experience of being in college in a way that we hope will produce some, some empathy. I'll just say one more thing about Columbia. It's like, we were lucky. Columbia's got a lot of money. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, like they funded this project, which was a very expensive project to fund. We had 30 researchers working on this across multiple different research contexts. And, you know, one of the challenges that we've seen, you know, since doing this project and trying to do others is like most researchers, we get our projects funded through research grants, things like that. There is no organization dedicated to funding research on women. There's no major group that does this. If you think of the major foundations or anything like that, it's kind of astonishing when you think about it. And the major research, major research center that sort of seeded all of the research that was happening on sexual assault in the 70s was defunded by the Reagan administration. And so there isn't a ton of support for this. So the kind of work that we were able to do at Columbia in some ways was impossible elsewhere. One, because having this woman in a leadership position, her name is Suzanne Goldberg. She's a lawyer. She's one of the main people who designed like the strategy towards marriage equality. And so she kind of got a bunch of what we were talking about. But also, you know, we were lucky that we were at an institution that had the resources to throw at this because like, to be quite honest, like very few other places would support research on violence that men do against women for the most part. And to think about it in the intersectional framework that we think about, which is like taking queer people seriously, thinking about it as a racialized problem. No, it's major work. Jennifer, you used the word ethnography. For my listeners out there, ethnography is a research method, just an observation, a kind of deep hanging out that anthropologists do, and some of you sociologists. And uh, the first thing I thought when I, when I heard about the study was, what does it mean to do deep hanging out as grown adult scholars with college students? And so I, I did some digging to figure out how you made this happen. But can you talk a little bit about how you were able to kind of track and study college students? you know, as, as professors, right? I mean, how did that happen? And what were some of the challenges that, that, that popped up? Well, not just as professors, but as professors who go to bed at 930. So, right. that's what I, know. yeah, that's, right. that was the subtext. I was, I was, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 10 o'clock. Wait, it starts at 10? Right. No, those cups of coffee that we talked about, we are routinely <laughs> drinking them at 530 in the morning. Yeah, exactly. so, so we hired an incredible team of younger people with master's or doctoral level training. So there were five of them. And we had also an undergraduate advisory board. And the undergraduate, there's Columbia and Barnard students who sort of represented the diversity of the undergraduate student body. And so the undergraduate advisory board helped our team of ethnographers meet students Across the campus. So like religious students and athletes and students who like just stayed in their rooms and played video video games or settlers of Catan, like all of the different kind of kinds of student experiences. And so for all of those private experiences in dorms and parties and religious spaces, that was our younger researchers because they were the ones who had the stamina to stay up till four in the morning, hanging out with students. And also like, it would be super awkward to see your professor at a party. Like we were not exactly. invited there. Yeah. So we Hello, never did that. Like, people, what are right. we doing? You know, like, like that Steve Buscemi meme. It just seemed to... Like there was, I mean, we went to homecoming together. And I think that even there, like we, when we saw some members of the UAV who were like super drunk, they were they were embarrassed to see us. They like you know came up to us, gave us big hugs, and we're like, okay, we're even that we're not doing it anymore. So so we spent some time like you know in the dining hall, like the places where it's not weird to see a professor, and the rest of the of the deep immersion, the hanging out. And I, I want to highlight that it's not just in fraternities, but like riding the bus up to the athletic fields and chilling in dorms, getting ready for parties. So like the sort of quotidian moments that make up daily life, because there are lots of things that are taken for granted as part of people's lives that they won't tell you because they don't even like, they're so taken for granted that it's not even worth mentioning. But they, as a scientist, you can observe if you spend time with them. And so that's why we do that, that deep immersion. And so that work was complemented by uh, focus groups, which is like organized conversations with, you know, religious students or women or freshmen and key informant interviews, which is, you know, interviews with people who have like some special expertise. 
about students. So there were a range of methods that we use to produce the information in the book. But all told, we sort of go from many directions to describe the whole social world that undergraduates experience. No, and it's powerful. And, I, and I, I'm glad you explained that because I want people to understand that this isn't just sitting down and, and interviewing people and asking them what they think. You all were really deeply uh, engaged and invested and embedded uh, in the everyday lives of students and the, the everyday culture of the campus. This book is incredibly powerful. It shook me at times, but I learned so much. And I, I, I went in expecting that. You two are both brilliant scholars. But this book is helped me think about sex, sexuality, sexual assault, campus life, campus culture. in in ways that I just hadn't before. Jennifer, talk to me about why you wrote the book. So in 2014, I was looking around at the national conversation around campus sexual assault, and it was really focused on adjudication and on getting adjudication right. And, you know, people were talking about campuses as a hunting ground. And I thought, you know, there's something missing from this conversation. I've spent my whole career in public health saying like, we need to do prevention. We can't just, we have to think about the bigger context. We can't be doing this one penis at a time. And that idea of like looking bigger was was pretty much missing. And so just a brief story to illustrate. Austin, when we interviewed him in many ways was like a very engaging interview subject. The only scene in the book that's like a pretty hot sex scene is Austin and his girlfriend on a hot summer night. They made their own fireworks. I'll let your readers imagine. <laughs> Not going to describe it. Keep it PG or PG-ish. Uh, but, you know, he actually had nicknames for the kinds of orgasms that his girlfriend had. So he was like, he had grown into a man who was committed to being not just a good lover, but like a good boyfriend. And yet in the interview, he described something that initially he labeled as a weird experience freshman year where his roommate wanted to be alone with the roommate's girlfriend. And so Austin got shuffled off into this other bedroom on campus where there was a girl who was sleeping, who was the roommate's girlfriend's roommate. And he was just told to go sleep there. And when he, he came into the room, she sort of drunkenly mumbled to him that she didn't want to do anything. And like, even that should give us pause. Cause like, why, when a stranger comes into your room, should you tell them that you don't want them to touch you? Like that should right. be obvious. Right. And yet, despite that, he got in bed with her and he started to touch her body and then he stopped himself. He was like, nah, that's not the thing. And so he told that part of the story. And then later in the interview, he was asked, well, what is a sexual assault? And he's like, well, it's when you something sexual happens that the other person doesn't consent to. And then he stopped and his eyes filled up with tears. And he was like, fuck me. Like he just was so wrecked that he had been that person. And so that's what we take on in sexual citizens. Like what could be done to prevent that kind of thing from happening? He was not a bad person but he did a bad thing. And we as a society could do better at preventing that. Absolutely. And it it seems to me that there's a way that we have just accepted that sexual assault and rape culture is just a part of American life and American culture. And college campuses seem to be a place where it's normalized. I mean, I I, I have yet to meet a scholar, I've yet to meet a a higher ed person, anyone who works in student services, and he works in campus life, who doesn't talk about this on their campus as a pervasive problem, whether it's an Ivy League school, whether it's a public university, whether it's a community college, if it has residential facilities. There's a conversation about this. Why is this such a problem on college campuses? So it's not actually clear that it's a bigger problem on college campuses than it is elsewhere. Hmm. You know, some, some of the research on sexual assault indicates that college-age women who aren't in college may be more likely, about 20% more likely, to experience assault. And so... It gets a lot of attention in college because I think, you know, college is a big part of the American imaginary. It's a big part of powerful media people's children's experience and their own experience. But this isn't, you know, it's a it's a pervasive American problem. It's a pervasive, in some ways, global problem. It's one that, as Jennifer indicated, like our attitude towards it has been how do we adjudicate or punish our way out of the problem? And like, we should know by now. We should know, like the the history of American mass incarceration should be a sufficient lesson to be like, punishment is not the way towards community transformation. And yet when we looked at the dialogue on sexual assault, you know, on the one hand, it's about like making sure we kick people out of communities, et cetera. 
And on the other, it's like, what do we do in these he said, she said moments? And so our book is really like saying like, wait, 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 wait. Like, let's take a step back and let's ask, like, how could we make these things not happen in the first place? Because if they didn't happen in the first place, we wouldn't have to worry as much about how to adjudicate them. Or if we could just get the rate a little bit lower or a good bit lower. And so the book is really like a vision for how we can bring that into being. Well, part of what you do to help us get to that place of setting a vision is you give us some constructs, some ideas that kind of guide the rest of the book. This idea of sexual citizen, not only is the title of the book, but it's, it's, it's a big idea, as is this idea of the sexual project and also sexual geographies. Can you break down what those three things are? Because I found them incredibly helpful. So think about Austin's story that he told. So sexual citizenship is the idea that people have the right to choose their own sexual experiences and that they need to understand that other people have that same right. So he was not recognizing that that young woman as a sexual citizen. He was only focused on his own sexual self-determination and not acknowledging her right to not be touched by some stranger in her bedroom. So that's that's how sexual citizenship fits in. Sexual projects is- um, Can I ask you one more question about sexual okay, citizenship? Because yeah. uh, so, I want the audience to understand, in, in many ways you're talking about agency, right? The ability to make decisions about your own sort of sexual choices and desires, but also, but also respecting that of others. Is that- We're talking about a socially cultivated sense of agency. So it's really important, like because our framework is really not about- how can people be less shitty, but how can we build a society in which less harm happens sexually? And so if you think about how Americans treat young people, that whole like not under my roof thing that parents do, that's basically a fundamental denial of young people's sexual citizenship. You can't teach young people like sex is a terrible, dangerous thing. Don't do it till you get married and then expect them to be comfortable in their own sexual self-determination, be comfortable setting their own sexual boundaries, and also see other people as equally self-determining. So the, the title is really a provocation to the adults of America to see young people as having the right to choose sexual experiences. Like we can't solve the problem of campus sexual assault without recognizing young people's sexual citizenship. Just one more question about citizenship, and I promise I'll leave it. it I just find it very interesting and provocative, as, as you said. And in the book, you start to touch on this. The one question I had about it was around sort of how at least we understand citizenship in the United States. My one worry was, you know, one when people think about citizenship, they think about something that is bestowed by an outside party. They think about it as something that some people have and some people don't. Because I understand how, as a heuristic, it works. And then I wondered a little bit about what that might connote to someone who understands citizenship in very particular ways in relation to the nation state and all this other stuff. Yeah, we were totally worried about that. Actually, initially, we'd sort of thought about it as like sexual self-efficacy and then thinking about how communities build efficacy in people. But then we thought like, you know, we wrote this book for people who are not fellow academics. I mean, sure, we wrote it for them, but we also wrote it for a broader community of kids going off to college and parents of younger children. And we thought, like, actually, this concept of citizenship has a bunch of problems with it, like, just as you've indicated, Mark, but it's, we don't think about citizenship as as something that some people have and other people don't. We think about it as something that communities foster and cultivate in others. And so that fostering and cultivation and the community responsibility is super important because so much of the story of sexual assault has been about individual sociopaths, right? It's like the the sociopathic stranger in the bushes who's going to like leap out. And that's not what most sexual assaults are. Most people who are assaulted are assaulted by someone they know, someone they've had some sexual contact with before, you know, somebody who's in their friendship group. So we should need to think about, you know, this problem a little bit differently. I also just want to add like, Jennifer and I aren't super moralistic when it comes to sex. We'll talk about that with sexual projects but we are when it talks about sexual citizenship. Like we really do think that there is a deep moral obligation, not just for us to develop a sense of sexual citizenship in young people today, but to to convey to those people that they have to recognize the equivalent rights in others. That Mm. central to the idea is that like when you're in an intimate encounter with someone, recognizing their fundamental equivalence, their human dignity, 
that they have the same set of rights that you do is essential. Wow. And I just, I feel like this is a safe space to really nerd out about ideas. <laughs> yes, and so yes. like the, the hot take on citizenship in America is that it's a binary, like you're either in or you're out. And there right. certainly is a, is a dimension of that. Like either you can marry and bring your partner here or you can't. And yet if you look at state and municipal laws that can be inclusionary or exclusionary. Think about something like the states that have enabled undocumented people to get driver's licenses. Like there are all kinds of ways in which actual like citizenship in the way that you're thinking about it is much more of a spectrum. So that's just like a little footnote from my migration research. No, that's super helpful. And again, I love the title. I I think particularly for a broad audience, it gives it really hones in on the thing that you're trying to get at. It was just my own little nerd in the back of my mind thinking about that question. Uh, Seamus, what are sexual geographies? So sexual geographies is the idea that space matters. And there's so much social science research out there about the importance of space, how it's not just a backdrop for how we live our lives, but it actually produces our social experiences. So you know, just think of an example for a moment. There's two young people, they're hanging out together. And they decide they want to go back, you know, away from the party that they're at to someplace a little bit more intimate. And so they go back to one of their rooms and it's a college dorm room. So they open the door to that room and they see four pieces of furniture, a chair, a desk, a bureau and a bed. What are they going to do if they want to sit together? They're going to sit on the bed. But and right. like that doesn't like make sexual assault happen. Let's be very clear. But it's also important to recognize that like beds have social meanings. Like beds are not just benign objects. They, they have meanings to them. And this is like one small example of how important sort of the spatial landscape is, the spatial landscape of the city, the spatial landscape of experience. I'll tell one just really brief story of a woman named Charisma in the book. And all the names Jennifer and I use are pseudonyms. Charisma was a a Black and Latina woman who found campus to be a super white space. She was like, she didn't like the party. She thought that the guys like were bad dancers and listened to terrible music and that they didn't particularly find her attractive. And so she ended up, you know, meeting some other guy who lived out in Brooklyn. And for those people who don't know, you know, the landscape of New York, getting to deep Brooklyn from Morningside Heights where Columbia is, is like another planet. It's like, I mean, I, I have friends who live in deep Brooklyn and I'm like, you know, it might be easier for me to like meet you if you lived in Philly. Like it could, be, exactly. it, could, it could be faster. So she has a disastrous time getting out there and like ends up back at his place, drenched, you know, and he ends up assaulting her, which is a very short version of that. And like, you might ask, think about that assault and say like, well, clearly he's a terrible person for assaulting her. Why did that happen? That guy was a, was a sociopath. But another way of thinking about this that is in addition to the harms that he did to her was she'd been driven off campus. She, in many ways, lived in a campus space where whiteness was the sort of dominant force, where, you know, her experience was one that she didn't feel like was particularly valuable. And then she ended up in a space that this guy controlled and she wasn't from a wealthy background. So where some students could have like opened up an app and like been whisked back to Morningside Heights in an hour Uber ride that costed $65. Like she didn't really have much of an option to get back. And so space, the fact that she was trapped out there, the fact that she was on a campus that felt so racialized in its spatial dynamics is part of an essential essential way of understanding her experience of assault. Sexual projects, incredibly fascinating. What are they? So you would think that like only an academic would ask the question, what is sex for? That like, it's obvious that <laughs> sex, is, sex is for reproduction or sex is for pleasure. But like, let me tell you, none of the young people we spoke with were having babies. And a lot of the sex that they had was not very pleasurable. And so that opens up the question, like, what are they trying to accomplish? And this does build on my, my earlier work And we found sort of five different sexual projects, which is not a complete possible list of the sexual projects, but just the ones that that emerge as the most prominent from student stories. So like, think about Austin, for example. His sexual project in that moment was accruing experience when he assaulted that young woman. And yet he grew into a sexual project that was about both pleasure and actually expressing care and connection, which was was pretty unusual. Like I would say the least common sexual project. Other sexual projects that students have, including figuring out who they are, particularly for queer students, and, and bringing status to the group. 
So what, whether it's accumulating status themselves or, or being part of a group that accumulates status. So sex is, it's a social act. It's not a cognitive act and it's not an individual act. And so when you step back, you can see that there are a lot of things other than just getting off that people are trying to accomplish through sex and particularly for women and the campus orgasm gap, like there is no getting off. One of the things that struck me in this book, and I, I guess I hadn't thought about it in this way, is that there are young people who are having sex purely to get good at it. They're making a choice to have sex with people so that they can be good at sex. I guess so that at the time when they want to have the real sex, like they'll be proficient at it, almost like taking like SAT prep or something. It's, I just didn't imagine it that way. And maybe as a 17-year-old or 16-year-old boy, I did the same thing. I didn't frame it that way. And maybe I'm just misremembering the past. Help me understand this, because this is part of the sexual project as well. So, I mean, it could be a particularly Columbia thing, right? Like we're with super motivated kids who are like really competitive and want to be the best at everything. But I think it's more than that. I mean, almost nobody we spoke to had parents or family members or community members sit down with them and be like, you know, sex is going to be a really important part of your life. It's going to be something where you connect with some of the most important other people in your life. And so you should think about what you want from it. Instead, it was like kind of viewed as like, skill, um, something that was part of uh, their social experience, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of their, the questions that they did get from their families about their life in college was like, what's your major going to be? How's that going to set you up for a job? Like, there's so much attention to people's experience in the labor force and like, you know, how college is going to be a pathway to an ultimate end, which is a good job and not much attention to like intimate personal relationships. And so we view that kind of as like a failure of the communities around young people because what's happening is like nobody's really talking to them about what your sexual their sexual projects are. Like what should you value in sex? Why are you having it? You know, what do you want out of your intimate life? What the focus is it's always on like what's your career going to be. So like they kind of think like relationships can come later. And I you know, I challenge some of the listeners to ask themselves like if they've got kids, like, have you ever said to your kids, like, relationships can come later, like, focus on your schoolwork or something like that? And what that conveys to young people. And then, like, sex becomes this, like, thing that is surrounded by silence, is something that you're just kind of, like, doing relative to, like, a little bit of, like, utility. And, you know, in our case, like, people were like, well, when I'm in that relationship that actually matters, I don't want to be terrible at sex and have them abandon me. That's kind of some of what we saw. Wow. So you have people who are literally taking out Craigslist ads to meet people, not to have sex, but to, to even to get proficient at the kind of the lead up to sex, the, the fooling around, the messing. I mean, I'm stunned by this. As a parent, I'm terrified by this. But, but, but I'm also stunned by this. Jennifer, how do we get there? Is, is this just is this a lack of obviously there's a lack of dialogue between parents. Is this, is this also a question of sex ed? Is this a broader cultural question? How do, how do we get to a place where young people, one, believe that they need to get good at sex as a, and, and to treat it as, as a kind of functional skill as opposed to a human interaction and an emotional engagement. And, and why do they feel as if a stranger, a hookup, is the way to get there? I mean, that in the interview to which you refer broke my heart into a million tiny pieces. That, and that was sort of like my heart was, that, that was a refrain that Seamus and I had consistently throughout the research with like, you know, this story broke my heart into a million tiny pieces. But that one- Can you tell that story a little yeah, bit? Because yeah, yeah. I didn't do it so, well. <laughs> so, so this is a young woman who really saw sex as achievement and she wanted to be good at it. And so when she was in high school, she connected with men. I don't remember if it was Craigslist or Tinder or whatever. Like, you know, she connected with men she didn't know, older men. She was very clear, like she wouldn't meet men who sent her dick pics and she wouldn't meet men who couldn't write a text in a complete grammatically correct sentence. So this was a girl with standards. And she was very clear she didn't want to have penis in the vagina intercourse. Like she just wanted to fool around. But she was trying to develop proficiency in like the same way you like do SAT flashcards. Like she just, she didn't think about sex as a partner specific interaction. She just thought of it as like a skill. And I think that that is a failure as a parent, I know it's hard to be a parent, so I, I, I feel bad saying it's a failure of parenting, but I think it is. Like, it is our job as parents to provide a moral foundation. And sex is actually a pretty important part of how you interact with other people. I remember 
when the Elliot Spitzer scandal broke, this was like many years ago, and we were sitting around the dinner table talking, and my younger son was five. And so, you know, the incident was described, and his first response was, well, I hope they used condoms, because he's a little smarty pants. But then (laughs) his second response was, that's gross to have sex with someone you don't love. And so, like, that conversation didn't come from nowhere. That came from, like, us being the sex ed family and us raising our kids in a way where, like, the refrain is sex is a normal part of a healthy life. And so, like, we can do this as parents. We just need to, like, show up and be willing to have those conversations from when the kids are little. Does sex education have a larger role in this uh, than it should, or or, or are we just doing it wrong? But I think about when I was in, in, in school, and I'd go to sex ed or it was just health class, you know, and, you know, half the year they tell us what diseases we'd get if we had sex. And the other time they tell us about condoms and they tell girls what to do if a boy wanted to have sex and how to the various ways to say no and what the consequences were of saying yes. There was little conversation about desire, little conversation about pleasure. It was like a scared straight for sex. And I'm like, is the problem that we shouldn't be having these conversations in school or should we be, should we be having different ones? I mean, how should this play out and what role is that, is that playing right now in terms of how people understand sex? Yeah, we absolutely have to be having these conversations, you know, in, in schools and, you know, a few things like comprehensive age appropriate sex education is actually really popular. So like if you look at the political discourse right now, you'd be like, nobody wants that. And except you'd look at it and you'd be like, actually, most parents do. In part because like, A lot of parents don't want to be having these conversations at home and like providing it at school is important. Another reason is, you know, Jennifer and I kind of use this concept of herd immunity, which we used this concept before COVID. And so now I think most people kind of know what it means, but like, even if individual parents do a great job with their own kids, like, you know, Jennifer's kids grew up in a household where both parents, you know, research and talk about sex and the father, you know, developed basically the the standard set of ideas and curricula about what we should be doing um, for this. So like, you know, not all kids are going to get that, but, but Jennifer's kids are going to encounter other kids who got the kind of curriculum that you got or even worse. I mean, mm. the young people we spoke to when we talked to them about their sex ed more than once said, Oh, you mean my sexual diseases course? Like, and it was like, it's all about like the problems that come with sex, pregnancy or disease. Right. And, and instead of being like, Let's talk about values. Let's talk about what we value as a community. And, you know, this isn't just about sex. Like it starts super young, but like when you like raise your kid and you tell them, don't grab, use your words, that is sex ed. Like that is a lesson that we can tie later on to sex and sexuality. So we're not talking about like just making sure that like, you know, two-year-olds are getting comprehensive information about, you know, the mechanics of sex, we're talking about all the things that we do with young people that teach them about the importance of communicating their wants, about respecting their bodily autonomy and making sure that they have the notion that like, if adults touch them without their wanting to be touched, it's not okay, right? Like that is all part of the broad sex ed that we could be giving people. And and in terms of the stakes, Mark, it's huge. I mean, it's like with our project was part of a really big project that included also a quantitative portion that doesn't feature in the book so much except for us to draw upon it. And Jennifer's husband actually led the writing of one of these papers. And in that paper, what it showed was that for women who had sex ed that was sort of more comprehensive age-appropriate sex ed in high school that included practicing refusal skills, those women were half as likely to be raped in college. So if we're asking ourselves, like, you know, half, like it's for the listeners out there, like you may not get how big of an effect that is, but like the aim for the COVID vaccine right now is 50% effective. That is our goal for the COVID vaccine. And we actually have something like that for rape on campus, right? Like we have something that could hugely lead to a decline in, in sexual assault on campuses and it's sex ed. And it's gotta be something different than what we're doing right now. You know, the other problem with sex ed is like really biological. So it's like, we use a driving analogy a lot in the book and it's like teaching people to drive by telling to them how spark plugs work. Like you don't actually need to know how spark plugs work to drive. And like as important as it is to know about ovaries and fallopian tubes and the uterus and how eggs travel through there, like 
we need to have slightly different conversations when it comes to sex and intimacy and relationships in our sex ed curriculum. Hmm. This conversation about sexual assault is in the book is, is incredibly powerful. One of the things that, that we really walk away from is an understanding, one, that this idea of, of stranger rape is only a slice of the conversation around sexual violence, sexual assault, and that so much of, of what you're talking about, particularly in terms of how we can reduce the amount of sexual violence that we see, is in these intimate relationships, these partner relationships, these dating relationships, these friendship circles. Can you talk a little bit about the, the various ways that people understand sexual assault, the various ways that people conceptualize it? particularly within, within the study, the people you're talking to. Many of the students told us stories that they described as having sex, that, we, that, that were clearly assault. And in the book, we discuss them as assault, not to disregard their labeling of their experience, but I think to name something that students are uncomfortable naming. Because once you, you say, okay, this person who is my boyfriend or my former boyfriend assaulted me, then I think the next place you feel like you have to go is they're a terrible person. Therefore, I'm a terrible person because how could I be in a relationship? So I mean, like one story, for example, a young woman got a call from her ex-boyfriend. He wanted to meet up. He was sad. Like his sister had gotten a cancer diagnosis and he was just like wrecked about it. And so they met up in the park and she thought she was like reconnecting with him as a friend. And next thing you know, he like pushes her up a rock and rapes her. And she said no. And then he put her on the ground and kept raping her. And as she told us this story and she like laughed and she's like, there was dirt in my vagina. And like she, she, but she described it as having sex. Like she was not comfortable putting a label of rape on it. And, but I think it's important that we recognize it as rape because if like, imagine an iceberg, Right. At the tip of the iceberg above the water is those sort of sociopathic predator, you know, stranger behind the bushes. But like in the book, we dive beneath the waters and like map out the whole giant iceberg. And a lot of that is experiences that students describe as having sex, but that are actually assault. Wow. Uh, there's a piece in the book. Uh, again, you take this up. I mean, there's a way that uh, many people, particularly in, in, in the sort of sexual violence prevention community, are very strict about not calling anything sex. That's an instance of assault. And there's a way in the book that you use the word sex a little bit more broadly, not because you're denying that. You're very clear that this is assault and this is problematic, but you're also trying to help us understand sort of how other people are making sense of these experiences. How did you come to arrive? I mean, it seemed like there had to be some ethical and moral decision-making you had to make as you're writing this book up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's this big refrain, like rape is not sex, rape is not sex, rape is not sex in the um, sexual violence community. And that's really important. Like, we don't deny that. But I think, you know, as Jennifer said, many of the people who experienced assault described either what they were doing when they committed assaults or when they were being assaulted as sex. And so that's really important to recognize. And then the other thing is that, like, most sexual assaults start as consensual sexual encounters. You know, most assaults are consensual until they're not. And we're not trying to, like, suggest, like, gray rape or that there's ambiguity, you know, that the question of ambiguity is really a question of like, you care about the ambiguity if you care about adjudicating and like how you hold people accountable for what happened. And that's an important project. It's just not our project. And, you know, we are able to kind of live in the lived experience of these people. You know, we take this much more anthropological and sociological approach that thinks about like, the sense-making that people make of their own lives is super important. You need to understand their own subjectivities and their own understandings of their experiences. And so the book is sort of designed around that. Like we, as much as you could read a book about sexual assault that's like emotional valence is empathy, like that's kind of what we aim for. And the reason for that is that like, we really think that in order to address this problem, in order to prevent it, we need to sort of stand a little bit less in judgment and a little bit more in understanding. And from that perspective and understanding, design a range of interventions that are going to be many. There's going to be no silver bullet for this that help reduce the likelihood that this continues to happen. And I think understanding people's experiences and how they're navigating and how they're making sense of them helps us get to that place you're describing. I was thinking about Gwen. And I have 
women friends who have described similar. And Jennifer, I'm going to ask you to describe the Gwen story because I've, I've had many uh, women friends who've had similar experiences. And some say some joke about it. Some, and I've had queer male friends who, who've talked about this as well. And thinking about the kind of functionality or the need to to survive an experience by doing by making choices that you otherwise would not make. And, and when those choices are made under duress, to think about them as, as instances again of sexual violence is a whole other way of thinking about this. And I think sometimes we don't. Gwen, so much to say about Gwen. So Gwen was sort of a normatively very beautiful young woman. She was tall, blonde. She came to New York and slid into the club scene and in a way that felt very exciting to her. And so she would meet sort of not very famous actors and B-list athletes and like, but to her, it was thrilling. And, and they would invite her back to their hotel rooms. And she was very clear. She didn't want to have sex with them. And so then she said, well, the evenings would wrap up. She would give them a blowjob just to get out of there. And we don't read those experiences as assault, but we read them as sort of the unequal extraction of pleasure in a way that is normalized and part of the context of assault. So she felt like she owed them something. They also felt like she owed them something. There was this one-way flow of sexual gratification. It was like they didn't go down on her so she could get out of there, right? Like imagine if you had dinner with a friend and they always cooked and you always ate and like how fair would that be? So that was part of Gwen's story. And then there were two times that Gwen was assaulted by men she knew once her friends didn't love the club scene. They're like, you should date guys on campus. And so they encouraged her to say yes when a senior asked her out. She was a freshman that felt special. And she had this whole like thing in mind where they were going to go slow and like make out on the first date and then like second base on the third. Like the bases are definitely still a thing. And that was not his imagination. Like he wanted to have sex that first night. And she had to sort of like negotiate him down to just sleeping over and cuddling, which she's like, okay, this could not be terrible. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night and he's humping his, her leg. And she's like, okay, that's disgusting. And right. she labeled that an assault. And then it wasn't until the third time that she was assaulted that she actually acknowledged her sexual citizenship. Like she, we fail. It's not that Gwen failed. It's that we failed her. Like she had grown up without anyone ever helping her learn that she had the right to not have sex that she didn't want to have and to, to establish those boundaries. And obviously like all those men around her, like who taught them that they had a right to women's bodies, right? Like the, the, the third assault, which I'm not going to describe, it's, it, was, it consisted of unwanted touching. It was very traumatic for her. Like why should she have to suffer like that to claim her sexual citizenship? And like who taught that guy that he could grab at her like that? Right. And I think the gender dimensions of this are so key to think about. I mean, Again, too often within a context of a rape culture, we talk about the choices women make to get themselves in those situations. We talk about how women should respond, even in, in health class. It's like, here's what you do if a boy tries to have sex with you. Here's what you, you know, not thinking about women's desire, not thinking about women's pleasure, but also not thinking about the way that women shouldn't be held responsible for sexual assault and sexual violence. These, these are, this, is, this should be a male project, right? Figuring out how to stop this stuff from happening. What are we teaching boys? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be a male project. It's actually got to be an even bigger project than that. I mean, what Jennifer and I end up saying kind of at the end of the book and sort of in the very beginning is that like, there's this long tradition of understanding assault in relationship to gender and power, about the unequal gender distribution of power. And we think that's right. But we also think that there's a lot more power in society than just gendered power. And, you know, from our perspective, we're actually not going to be able to address the issues of sexual assault without a much broader program of equality that includes things like queer liberation and racial justice. So for example, every single Black woman we spoke to told us a story of unwanted sexualized touching. Every single one. And like that is not an experience of gender alone. That was an experience among those Black women of sort of a racialized disrespect of their autonomy, that their bodies were seen by their classmates as like accessible to be touched and prodded without their consent. The LGBTQ community has, in our own research and across many other studies, the highest rates of uh, sexual violence among any community. 
part of that is the ways that that community is systematically sort of disenfranchised. I mean, most states don't provide LGBTQ inclusive sex ed. Some actually mandate that you cannot mention LGBTQ issues in your sex ed. It's illegal to do so. And so that systematic denial of their sexual citizenship is enormously important and produces a context where they're more likely to experience sexual assault. And so, yes, this has got to be a project of, you know, gender equality and educating men. It also has to be a project of racial equality, of queer liberation, of looking at class and disability. And again, in the quantitative work that we were a part of, led by Claude M. Ellens, Students who had difficulty paying for basic needs were disproportionately likely to be assaulted. Why? I mean, we like we're able to see the trend, and you know, we're like, this is our social scientists being like, we don't have a causal effect there. But like, let me take a step back and say, like, why? Because of power. I mean, because of a range of things. So, what does that power look like? One, the sex ed landscape is hugely in- inequitable. You know, kids who go to public school, and in particular, like rural, poorer public schools far less likely to get comprehensive sex ed than people who go to private school, than parents who pay for a wide range of additional education. Second, the experience of precarity matters, right? The experience of being in a precarious position on campus where you don't feel like your voice is the typical voice, where you don't feel like your voice matters as much, makes it harder to express that voice, makes it harder to say things like, my position is legitimate, I don't want to do this, et cetera. You know, so it's partially like the context that those kids grow up in. It's likely the context of like just being a poorer kid on a rich campus, on a campus that students describe in general as a white space where, you know, the the sense of fragility and precariousness in that space affects people's capacity to express themselves. Jennifer, I was thinking about, even as Seamus was talking, I was thinking about a place like Columbia is a white space, but in terms of social life, it's also in many ways a white male space in terms of power dynamics. I'm thinking about frat houses, for example. Like, the black fraternities don't have frat houses and they don't have parties to the extent they're even allowed on campus at this point. These are white male spaces. They're the ones that have the alcohol. They're the ones that that have the parties. To what extent is is the built environment of the campus as well as the kind of social environment of the campus designed to kind of reinforce these asymmetric power relations, but also the, the kind of outcomes we're seeing with regard to sexual assault? I think that lifts up the the spatial dimension of our analysis and the way that we see sexual geographies, the sort of the organization of sex in space as important for producing vulnerability. That's a pretty abstract way of articulating it. So let me tell you a story. And, And this is sort of like the prototypical assault story that people think of when they think of campus sexual assault. Lucy was a freshman. She had gone to boarding school and, and it was pretty sheltered. And she, she was psyched to like arrive on campus. Her sexual project was to like make out with some boys and eventually lose her virginity. And so early in freshman year, like that first week, they were in a bar. It's really easy to get into a bar in Morningside Heights if you're a girl, even if you're like if you're 18, you just like flash any piece of paper and the bouncer lets you in. And, and they met two seniors And it felt really flattering that Scott was paying attention to Lucy. You know, he bought her some drinks. He invited her back to the frat house. And to her, it felt like her whole project was coming together. And so they stumble up Amsterdam Avenue. And, you know, eventually they're outside the frat and her phone is ringing. And it's because her friend is trying to, like, find out where she is to do that bystander intervention to keep her safe. And Scott's not psyched to wait for the friend, but they wait for the friend and they eventually they go up and inside the frat. Now, fraternities are not supposed to serve hard alcohol. That doesn't mean they don't do it. It just means they keep it upstairs. And so Scott offers to make the girls some drinks. And so they go up to the second floor. So just pause for a minute. These are two freshman women on the second floor in a building they've never been in before, where Scott is surrounded by all of his friends. So Lucy's friend like has a sip of the drink and passes out. And Scott invites Lucy up to his room. So now they go up to the third floor where he belongs and she doesn't. And so when he starts to take off her pants and she says, no, don't. And he says, it's okay. And then he rapes her. Every time I tell that story, like I want to apologize for telling that story because it's a very hard story. Then the simplest reading is that Scott is a sociopath. But the more complex reading is that Scott is actually unaware of all of those dimensions of power. Like it's not just the space, 
it's the age and it's being surrounded by his friends and it's the level of sexual experience. And it's probably that he's got six inches and 40 pounds on her. Like there are many, many different inequalities of power that come together in that moment. And I think a thing that we generally fail to do is to sensitize people like Scott to the power they wield. Like, I mean, Scott should, no question, Scott should have listened to Lucy when she said no. Like, when someone says no, that means no. And at the same time, we could do a better job of teaching him to see how when she says no and he proceeds he doesn't have to exert physical force because there's so much social force that is silencing in that moment. And so like a more complex analysis of that moment opens the door to all kinds of different prevention strategies. My only question was about prevention strategies, sort of, I mean, because I I know people are here listening and they're thinking, oh my God, this is a crisis far bigger than we imagined. Uh, what do we as campus folk do? What do we as parents do? What do we as everyday citizens do? What what do we do? Great. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. I mean, the, you know, the story of Scott and Lucy that Jennifer just told is partially a story of space on campus and, you know, how space and power are deeply intertwined. And there are all kinds of things we do about space that augment rather than challenge power inequalities. So like seniors in college get better dorm space than freshmen, right? They get like common areas and kitchens and all kinds of things. Well, what's the consequence of that? You know, when two people want to hang out, where are they going to hang out? In the space controlled by the senior, who's already more powerful. You know, straight white dudes have a lot of space on campus that they just naturally control, whether or not that's a fraternity space or, you know, any kind of range of things. The control over who can be where is racialized, it's gendered. And so, One thing we can do is just to like think about what are the sets of things that we're doing that are challenging inequalities versus those things we're doing, which are like, you know, augmenting inequalities. And so space is one critical thing we can do. College is actually too late. I mean, not too late, but it's like, it's late for this to happen. One of the strongest predictors for being assaulted in in college is having been assaulted in high school. And so one of the things that we have to do is start these conversations earlier. This is why, Mark, when you were like, you know, what should we be doing with schools and sex ed? We were like, we've got to keep that there. And we have to make sure that we have comprehensive age-appropriate sexuality education starting in kindergarten. And that has to be part of the program. Jennifer, I know you have so many more things to say about this. I mean, our argument in Sexual Citizens is that campus sexual assault is not a campus problem it's an everyone problem. And that means the solution involves everyone. So yes, 100%. Like if your legislators don't support comprehensive age-appropriate sex education, you have to get yourself some new legislators. And that is primarily at the state level because I think it's gonna be a long time till this moves at the federal level. So those nine states that mandate sex ed that has to be homophobic, like that's terrible. And in addition, because federalism, there's just this landscape of inequality. Like New York State, which is supposed to be such a blue state, doesn't have support for comprehensive sex education at the state level. So, you know, if you grew up in Scarsdale, you get it. If you grew up in the Adirondacks, you don't. So yes, certainly comprehensive sex ed, but also like where are religious institutions in all of this? Like I think the conversation we're having about religious institutions is that they should be spaces free from sexual danger, like that's a pretty low bar for institutions that are supposed to be- Super low bar. <laughs> right, right, right. And like, yes, 100%, we're on, we're on board with that. But like, you know, I belong to a temple where there is a teen program that is explicitly organized around providing a space for young people, uh, young men, young women, young genderqueer people to talk about gender and sexuality in a religious values framework. Like, what does it mean to be a good Jewish person? And how do you, how does sex fit into that? How does, how do relationships fit into that? Um, The Unitarian Universalist Church has the OWL curriculum, which is sort of like the definitive, and there's a secular version for people who want it that we actually use at our son's um, elementary school. So so there, there are some religious options, but I think fundamentally, like if you are a church going person, yes, your church should not be homophobic and not be doing harm to young people, but like, what is the point 
of having values about human interaction if you're not going to apply them to the, the topic that is actually like most urgent for young people. And, and that's even like, that's just the beginning because really every institution that touches young people's lives. So, you know, athletics, summer camp, like all of those touch points are opportunities for prevention. And so like, like certainly there are many, many things that campuses could be doing differently, but really we have to launch our children into adulthood prepared to have sex in ways that don't hurt other people. Oh, wow. I want to talk to you all a little bit about just writing. Whenever you write a book, you become invested in the ideas of the book, but also the people who you represent. How at the emotional level was it to spend this much time writing about sexual assault? I mean, this was really hard. And I have to say, like, thank God I had Jennifer to do it with. We actually didn't know each other before we started this project. We were an arranged marriage. Like we were like wow. an arranged like meeting of two academics. So initially Jennifer had asked Alondra Nelson, who's a colleague of mine and of ours and was the Dean of the Social Sciences. And Alondra was like, no, I'm too busy, but you should like ask Seamus. And so we just met one day for coffee and that's how this started. And then, you know, as we designed the interviews that we were doing with students, we had like this entire protocol for helping intervene if there were psychological difficulties during the course of the interviews. And there were psychological difficulties during the course of the interviews, but they were ours. They were our team's challenges. And so, so much of doing this research was about building a team context and culture where we felt like we could be open with one another and there for one another. Mm. We started all of our meetings with a mental health check-in and then as we wrote this up, like Jennifer and I were constant contact through the writing. And a lot of that contact was just sort of making space to talk with one another about how this was affecting us, our lives, because it's, you know, the, the stories are really hard to, to read. And for the readers, like we probably rewrote all of those stories 50 times. So we're like living with the transcripts, comparing them to others, trying to make sense of them. And there were times where I think each of us felt a little broken by this project and had the other one to put us back together. Wow. Let me, let me ask a question about the, the kind of the functional dimensions of co-authorship. You know, you're, you're actually the first duo I've had on Coffee and Books. And so even, even interviewing you two together is, is an interesting experience. When you're writing a book together, what's your process like? Is it like I write a chapter, you write a chapter? Is it like we write sections together. How, how logistically do you go about writing a book together to make it like, but keep it in a singular voice? I mean, I think that we worked on the voice. So just sort of mechanically, we worked on the outline together. Like we met and we talked a lot to produce the outline um, and the book proposal. And then we divvied up the chapter writing, but, at the, but then we like back and forth so many times and developing a voice that, felt conversational and empathic, but also smart. And I think that the crafting the voice was a big part of the project. I'm glad you all were able to, to really spark that uh, conversation with this book. And it really is indeed a landmark study. It has changed the way so many of us have thought about issues of sex power uh, and assault on campus, but really uh, across America. This is an important book. I encourage everyone to read it immediately. How how can people get a hold of you two? You all are on social media saying smart things all the time, right? Well, saying things all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're both on social media. Sexualcitizens.com is our website. You know, we're traveling around doing lots of talks, community events, and a lot of the, the sort of stuff that we've done is on our website. And I'm Seamus Khan at, uh, at Twitter. Um, saying some wild things and maybe some smart things. I always appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> and how about you, Jen? I'm Jennifer S. Hirsch on Twitter, H-I-R-S-C-H. And, you know, the paperback comes out in January. And so we're hoping to book a very dense set of events. We're foregoing the honorarium in the hopes that people will buy copies of the book. Because, like, this is, I think it's a chance to take the book to the next level in terms of hopefully hitting the bestseller list. So, like, we're really available to be booked. Oh, um, that is going to happen. First of all, I'm gonna, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you guys will come out to Uncle Bobby's Coffee and Books. We'll do an event with you, a virtual event right now because of, obviously, COVID. Uh, but I encourage, and there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are university administrators. There are people here 
who are in charge of student life. I encourage all of you to not just buy the book and read it, but to buy mass amounts of the book for students, for faculty, for staff, for trainings. I, I, I really mean this. Now, and, I, and as you know, I don't say this about very many books, but this is a book that will fundamentally change the way we understand the work that we do. And it's so necessary. Jennifer, Seamus, thank you so much for joining me. And everyone out there, again, I know this has been a tough conversation in many parts for survivors and people who are friends, family, and, and who just love survivors or who just find these issues as, as devastating and traumatic as they are. If you need any support, if you need any help, please feel free to reach out to us. But more importantly, uh, reach out to the RAIN hotline. The number is 1-800-656-HOPE. Uh, and again, that is the National Sexual Assault Hotline uh, sponsored by the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, RAIN. Uh, the number is 1-800-656-HOPE, 1-800-656-4673. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Books. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle Coffee and Books Show. That's Coffee, A-N-D, Books Show. Also, you can buy all the books that I've been discussing here at bookshop.org slash shop slash Uncle Bobby's. Or you can go straight to UncleBobbies.com. That's Uncle B-O-B-B-I-E-S.com.